Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are we this week? You know what happened as soon as we went on lockdown, Ryan, in England? Um, no, I don't. It stopped raining. It's rained like one day in the five weeks that I've been in lockdown. It's kind of cruel, I think. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's bad. Because you're just, you're what, just looking outside thinking, man, I wish I was out there. Well, I do, the one thing that's good about this is I do take like one hour of either walking or running every day. So I do get outside. Like every day I've tried to just, otherwise I go crazy. But yeah, it's it's been cruel to to avoid, you know, all the sunshine for the last, I guess yeah. we're on week five now, week six. Yeah, something like that. I think it's a we hit a month this this week. We hit one month because I know I we started. The only reason I know we started it was the day before St. Patrick's Day. So March 16th is when I started working from home. Yeah. Um, but you guys How can't. Are you go old to, enough? I did. I, this week is better than last week. I think. I think if you yeah. listen to the tone of my voice in the last two podcasts versus this one, I think it's clear that I got. I spent a lot of time outside yesterday because I am tearing down a section of our deck that we have because the wood is is decaying and it's also built up around this tree and we want to get rid of the tree. So, um, spent a lot of time outside yesterday and I'll finish the job today after we're done recording. So. Uh, so that was fun. My back is killing me, but other than that, uh, other than that, it's been good, you know, taking, taking a hammer and a saw and just destroying stuff that has been, uh, really, really good for my mental health, just tearing some stuff down. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. I like demolition. Demolition is a good stress reliever for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So have you been watching anything? Been um, watching? So here's what I've been doing. Um, I, am desperate for sports. So what I've been doing is I've been going on YouTube and finding sporting events that I know that I don't know the, I don't know the result of, and I've been watching those on YouTube. So I've been watching a lot of Australian rules football. I've been watching a lot of rugby. Uh, I've been watching a lot of hurling and Gaelic football, um, just, just to try and just to try and have something. I am so desperate for just for for televised sporting events what's your what's been your greatest discovery so far uh hurling (laughs) hurling is completely insane i highly recommend uh going in and finding finding some hurling and watching that all right it it is it is not it is not a sport played by sane human beings and these people they're they're amateurs and they're just representing their particular county in Ireland and just hitting each other in the face with sticks while trying to put a ball either into a net or between two uprights with a flat stick and it is it's pretty i mean there's a lot more to it than that obviously but it's pretty incredible <laughs> All right, I'll have to check that one out. I watched, uh, so I've watched Contagion. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know if you want to watch it or not, but I was kind of like curious to see how well it stacked up. Um, and it was actually, it was pretty accurate. I think uh, the things that are kind of weird is the death toll in that thing is like obviously way bigger than it is with actual, with COVID-19. But it's also weird how, First of all, how calm everyone is about it. And they're like, oh, there's 80,000 cases, which in like the real life, we'd already were massively panicking. They're dismissing in the film. And I think it's really interesting at the end is basically kind of almost showing our future is that basically what you have to get is this wristband. It's like an immunity pass. And that becomes like something that people are like looking for. So I kind of predict that's going to be our future is once you've got your once you've caught COVID and survived, then you're going to get an immunity pass. And that's going to let you get out of the house, I guess. So that was that a bit sounds- that sounds very Orwellian. Yeah, that's probably so. That's that's one thing I'm watching for. Then I saw Groundhog Day. Do you remember Groundhog Day? <laughs> I I love that movie. Yeah, it's spectacular. And then it just struck me that basically all our lives now are like Groundhog Day. We just get up, <laughs> it's the same day over and over again. So I kind of like like the movie has a good message of just like you go through all the stages, right? Because Bill Murray goes through nihilism, <laughs> yeah. depression. 
failed attempts at romance and then kind of his self-improvement thing. So maybe I thought it actually maybe Groundhog Day was the better lockdown film than uh, Contagion. Because actually in Contagion, they don't really talk. They don't show how boring being locked down is. Right. They're just like just kind of implied they're in quarantine, but not, there's not much about that. The characters just kind of don't do much. And then it's mostly just about the pan, the, the virus spreading or whatever. Uh, so yeah. anyway, that's what I've been watching. Yeah. I, the, the only thing that I'm lacking and maybe 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 my deck fits this role. I really just need a Ned Ryerson to punch in the face. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yes, yeah, it's classic. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so we have uh, a really cool guest that you've lined up for us today. If you want to talk some curling. Yeah. So we're going to interview Jamie Danbrook, who's a uh, ice tech based in Halifax at the moment. Uh, and he also works for the WCF. He was hired by the English curling association to make the ice for our championships this February. So that's where I met him. Uh, and so we figured we'd kind of bring him on to get a slightly different perspective on the world of curling. Cause ice techs, I think see, see and know everything it's kind of one of the things that i kind of like uh picked up from sitting next to him a fair bit of time at the championship like they see how the games play they know all about that but they also have a really different perspective so we figured we'd have a chat with him just about ice making uh his thoughts on kind of different kinds of ice ask a few questions about different philosophies and and uh, learn a little bit about the wonderful world of ice yeah and if you like science we do get really nerdy at one point during this interview that was my one uh big contribution to this interview but yeah i kind of let you take the lead on this one uh we're joined today by jamie danbrook who's an ice tech uh currently based out of halifax but uh, moving off to switzerland in the next season uh i met him at the english curling championships because the eca brought him in as um to be to make the ice for our championships back in February, and we thought we'd have him on today to talk about ice, but also his kind of competitive curling career before that, and uh, get a lot of insights from the ice maker's perspective, because I think that's not covered as much in, in curling podcasts as some of the other topics out there. So, uh, Jamie grew up in British Columbia, and he represented BC twice at the Canadian Juniors in 2007 and 2008. Then he moved to Prince Edward Island and played with Brett Gallant and won the juniors in 2009, and then won the World Junior Silver that year as well. Uh, he's also played on Brad Gushu's team in 2011 and moved to Ontario and played with Mark Bice for a season before moving back to Atlantic Canada. So he's played, I got the count there right, is that five different provinces? Yeah, five different provinces. And then at, in the, about seven years ago, he shifted to making ice. And so he's now an ice maker for the WCF and has made ice at European championships, world championships. He made the ice at the world junior bees in Loya one year. Uh, and so we want to have him on today to talk about both competitive curling and ice making. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And thanks for coming on. So how, how are you holding up first of all with uh, the lockdown in Halifax? It's been interesting. Um, we're not like a full lockdown, but we're not allowed to do a lot of our normal things, walk the dogs in provincial parks and that sort of thing. So we're getting by. It's uh, It's been a while now, probably about a month or so. And uh, we're doing about as well as everybody else, I'd say. Yeah. So how did you get into curling initially? Was it something you picked up in your family or just uh, through school or... No, I actually just really enjoyed watching it on TV. And uh, my parents were intuitive enough to enter me into the junior program at the local club when I was eight years old. And uh, from there, it just took off. Okay. And so then, uh, so with junior curling, so you started off curling in BC and, and Ty Griffith was your skip in juniors or? Yeah, I played with Ty for two years. Um, the first year we didn't make uh, provincials, didn't... Uh, um, didn't have the greatest season overall. We did a little bit of a lineup switch up and uh, ended up uh, winning the province that year and uh, didn't have the greatest uh, record at Nationals. We went 4-8 uh, and eight and I think Ty actually got uh, an eye infection one of the oh. days and had to miss two games. So we picked up Steve Burgess from New Brunswick and oddly enough we went 2-1 and one without Ty. So we won half our games without him but you know, uh, it was a good experience. Uh, it was a good introduction to the national scene and uh, a lot of fun overall. 
Okay, and then then you moved to Prince Edward Island to play with Brett Gallant or the next season? No, uh, so I won with Ty in 05, and then okay. uh, Lou went after I graduated high school and moved out to uh, Vancouver, played with Jay Wakefield, Paul Checa, and Chase Martin. Um, mm-hmm. We were together for a couple seasons, ended up winning the province. Again, not a great national, um, went five and seven, I do believe. And after that, um, having been to a couple nationals, I really wanted to win one. I didn't want to go to one just to go to one. Um, they're fun, but uh, I really wanted to win one. So uh, by chance, Brett was looking for a lead. I reached out to him. Um, things kind of came together pretty quickly and moved out uh, out east to play with Brett. And they were the only team at that time whose mindset was, we want this season to win Worlds. Anything short of that would be considered a failure. And that was the same mindset I was going into it with. So um, had a fantastic season. Um, ended up losing the World Junior Final to a team we had stolen six on in the 1-2 game, which kind of stung. But, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good way to go out regardless. Um, I think we all look back on it pretty fondly. And everyone's gone on to have pretty good careers in the curling world since then. Was that common at the time? Um, Now it seems, you know, juniors are moving all over Canada with the goal of winning Canadians or even winning the worlds. But 11, 12 years ago, was that really that common? I don't think so. Uh, Honestly, I, I don't know of many others who did. Um, I don't think I, I, I know I probably wasn't one of the first, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it was overly common. But again, there was only a select few teams that had the experience and were going into a season going, let's not just get to provincials, let's let's win the world championship. Um, and Brett, as you can see now with his Briars and Adam Casey and Anson Carmody, we had Peter Galant as a coach who's coached uh, Korea now for a number of years. So, uh, you know, it was a good formula and everything kind of panned out. But to my knowledge, there weren't many people that uh, did that. Now it seems like every province has a an import from somewhere. And so in your men's career, I noticed you, you jumped around a fair bit in your 20s from province to province. Was that, was you just kind of following work opportunities or was it following curling opportunities or... Yeah, like I loved being out east. Um, there wasn't a lot of men's opportunities in PEI in Newfoundland. There was a, a pretty good men's team um, with Matt Blandford. Uh, our fun fact is the last team to actually beat Gushu at a men's provincial. I was on that team. <laughs> oh, wow. um, that was <laughs> 10 years ago now. Um, so it, uh, oddly enough, the team... We had this team, and then two guys moved away, so we had to pick up a couple guys, and it still ended up working out. So after that year, Brad dropped Jamie Korab and obviously picked up Furby. Uh, and Furby was only one to do a tour schedule at the time, so he had a tryout with, uh, I think it was four of us, uh, the mm-hmm. Shoe Brothers, who are Ontario, were Ontario-based and uh steven ryan and myself so we had a kind of like a mini tryout with brad and uh mark it included a an interview portion which uh brad <laughs> said was more awkward for him afterwards than it was uh us like he just I, everyone was nervous like it's brad you know he's got that high pedigree and anyone local having a chance to play on his team it's uh incredible so yeah. Sounds like the NFL Combine. (laughs) Yeah, it probably was, actually. It's probably a good comparison there. Yeah, so Mark gave me a call, I don't know, probably a week later and said, congrats, uh, we're picking you up for the season. And uh, so with that, I played three events with them through the season. It was uh, one local, one slam, and uh, one event in Ontario. So I didn't play a lot, but, you know, it was still... Still needed to practice every day. I had a slot at one o'clock every day where I'd go down and throw anywhere for an hour to two hours and work on everything and gym sessions, everything like that. So even though I wasn't playing as much regularly on the, with the team, the expectations were still sky high. 
and they definitely paid off. Like when we got to the Briar, things started to really click and started to really play well. Had a chance to one chance to play with them as an entire team and be with Randy as well. Uh, mm-hmm. The other events Randy didn't actually travel to. As we all know, it didn't end up uh, working out for them the best. Uh, I think it was just more or less a clash in different styles and kind of two different eras of curling too. So, you know, they're all good shooters and they're all very talented, but, you know, sometimes those things just don't pan out and don't work out the way that they hoped. And either way, we had a great year at the Briar, won the round robin, lost an extra end to Stoughton, drew the pin. Like we were sitting side of four foot and we were just, you know, as soon as he lets it go, you know that sadly he's going to make it. But And uh, ended up uh, playing Kevin Martin in the first ever bronze medal game at a briar. Oh, which wow. Was, uh, which was an interesting little um, piece piece of history that to be a part of. And ended up winning the game, which was a lot of fun. The crowds were spectacular all week. And uh, yeah, it was it was incredible, but was only meant to be for the one season, sadly. Was there a yeah. point during that season where you kind of maybe knew that it wasn't going to work out in the end? Were there, did, you know, were there things going on where you kind of hinted at how that was going to turn out? No, like everything was all kind of open-ended. I knew it was kind of a, a trial year. You know, I wasn't on the team full-time, and so I was just hopeful to try and work as hard as I could and play as hard as I could, hope for the best. Uh, sadly, Sadly, it didn't work out. Like, obviously, Jeff's been an incredible player for Brad for the last, well, 10 years or so. Casey did really well with him as well. And Adam, being a former teammate, was happy for him and gave me a chance to go play with Bice, which, again, like, we we had a pretty good year. We won a couple spiels, um, just didn't have the success when it came down to provincial play and that sort of thing. And it was kind of after that where I started backing down from playing as competitively like I enjoyed it but it was a grind and it was a little we were starting to see that bigger separation the slams are getting a little bit more popular and you start to see that gap between those tier one teams and those kind of tier two unless you were on one of those top top teams the Olympic trials and all that were looking a little bit more far-fetched is that the main difference that you've seen in curling from when you started in juniors to now is just that that gap or what what are some of the other things that you've noticed that that there's a big difference in curling from when you started to now? Are you saying like from a playing perspective? From a playing perspective, yeah, yeah. and kind of, and maybe also like a culture perspective. Yeah, like I think at when I first started playing, you'd see guys like JPG and um uh, Greg McCauley, like even though Greg won a world championship, you still saw like guys like Jay and Sean Adams and a lot of those guys making the trials and um, having very successful curling careers that were not so much circuit based. Um, now, yeah, there is that gap there. You pretty much have to be a, a full time dedicated curler to really have a chance at going to an Olympics or winning a uh, winning a Briar or a Scotties or even a Slam. Uh, there are very few teams that I think can just play locally, especially here in Nova Scotia, and have a chance at winning a Briar. We have some good talent here in Nova Scotia, and our teams, I would expect them to make the championship pool most years, but that's it. I, I don't expect them to really ever make playoffs. It's just not... It's just not, I don't think, possible with the amount of time and effort all those top tier teams are putting in as well as the funding and the sponsorships and all the different high caliber events that they go to well we'll get into how you kind of transition to to ice making here in a bit but you're you're the ice maker there at the club in halifax how have you seen that kind of trickle down to to club play you know are there fewer curlers are there fewer competitive curlers what is what is that that change in the top tier how has that trickled down to the club level for me personally i think expectations on ice are a lot higher are a lot higher i should mm-hmm. say i don't see much of a difference as far as membership and all of that curling canada is going to done a good job with 
incorporating new events like Travelers or Dominion or Club Playdowns, whatever, whatever you want to call them now, as well as they have the U18s and all that. So they're doing a lot of work in trying to get grassroots and trying to get younger people in. But uh, from a competitive standpoint, it you see it in Newfoundland. Anytime Brad wins, like their numbers at their provincial go from seven, eight teams to 15, 16. I think for a lot of those people, it's now if we win, we just get a chance to go. That's great. But their expectations aren't to win. Whereas I think before you could put together a pretty solid team and maybe have a chance at getting a little bit further along. I've got one last question just about your competitive career. It seems like you were a career lead. Uh, what what about that position kind of spoke to you? And did you ever think of playing anywhere else in a lineup? Well, actually, I, I played lead for those like middle seasons. But uh, when I moved to Nova Scotia, I played uh, with Brett McDougall. And uh, I actually played every position on the team that year, uh, <laughs> other than other than Skip. Um, and after that, I put together my own team with a few good friends, and I skipped for a couple of years. And we had a lot of success. We won uh, won our first WCT event together, and uh, really enjoyed skipping. And one one of the main reasons why I stepped down uh, from skipping after that was I was always away during provincials. So I missed I think three straight years of provincials, mm-hmm. and we knew that going into the season. So. I'll, I'll play second or I'll play lead, and that way it's a little bit easier to replace and the guys just moved up. You know, lead was just a position I fit into. I enjoyed doing it. was a good challenge. That being said, I I wouldn't go back and play lead now. I'd want to be skipping, <laughs> even though I played in two games, and I think in the last two years. Are there certain personalities traits a, a lead has to have? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you need to obviously have good communication with your team you need to be mindful of when to talk and when to kind of voice your opinions or concerns but for the most part you just have to be really focused on trying to make your shots the best possible because they do matter a lot of people think well you're a lead it is what it is but you know they, those shots really do matter in the long run especially now with the five rock rule mm-hmm. yeah if the guards aren't there then nothing else is going to work yeah exactly uh, so how did you transition into ice making? Is it something you picked up uh, in juniors or is it a, a job you kind of picked up later on after your competitive career? Well, oddly enough, my first ever job was at the curling club. I was a little rink rat. So I would go in after school. I'd go help uh, the ice maker clean up snow. And then I would go in, clean up the lobby, help the bartender bring kegs up just in time for the draw changeover. So I'd go out, mop, pebble nip all eight sheets and then uh once i was finished up that i was allowed to go home um and with that i actually took a couple of my level one my level two for the ice courses i didn't do anything with it after that though um it wasn't until i moved to newfoundland the second time that the club president at the time at the remax center uh, sent me an email said hey we're losing our ice maker this year we're wondering if you're interested in maybe applying for it they didn't actually know that I had my level one or my level two at the time. Um, and I was working at future shops. So it seemed like a good time to make what was a more mature career move. So applied for it. Thankfully ended up getting the position, um, through an interview, which I, it was my worst interview I think I've ever had. I had a slightly disastrous first season. You know, it was, I knew the basics, but I really didn't know what I was doing properly. So, Looking back on it, there was just so many things that I could have done better. But at the time, I just didn't know any better. So, you know, we we had a good season overall. Like, membership was good, and, uh, you know, we did the best we can. But, uh, you know, the building was lacking, to say the least. I remember trying to even do install, looking out the back corner, the power had gone off, and you know, part of the roof was starting to come up on the building. So we had to get the uh, engineers to come in and zap that down before we even started. But that was kind of my first real introduction into real ice making and uh, had a lot of fun with it. And a club opened up in 
Halifax and was kind of interested in not being as getting into a bigger city, something with a little bit more opportunities. So jumped at that and moved down to Halifax. And within a few years, I was doing three clubs and 16 sheets and things really took off from there. And so at what point did you start working with the WCF? Cause I know you do a fair bit of fair number of events with them these days. Yeah. So what ended up happening um, is I volunteered at the men's worlds in 2015. So I was part at this point in time. I was part of a Nova Scotia ice mentorship program. I think they called it at the time. So uh, I was there, dawn to dusk, didn't miss a draw. Um, the deputy chief ice tech at the event um, had an illness in his family, so he was actually late arriving. So what ended up happening was uh, I was asked to take on more of a leadership role there with the head ice tech, Jamie Barassa. And he introduced me to the right people, and they saw that I was there dawn to dusk every day. I was doing the base pebble. I was doing a lot more work and uh, ended up meeting Keith and uh, Kate, who were part of the WCF at the time. And you know, the next uh, July, I got an email asking if I wanted to come be a part of the Youth Olympics as their deputy chief ice tech. So... That was kind of a, a trial. It was at a curling club and with Mark Callan out of, out of Scotland. We had a great event. It wasn't, I won't say it wasn't difficult, but there was no big install. It was a curling club, four sheets. So there wasn't, the scope of things was a lot smaller, a lot smaller than this Youth Olympics that just happened. And uh, even though it was a great event, we, um, Canada won, which was nice. Um, but we, we <laughs> did a, we did a good job and uh, got along and Mark ended up uh, recommending me for more and things kind of snowballed from there. That's good. So is there a pyramid in like world, the world of ice making too? Like, is there, are there ice, the kind of ambitions for different ice makers to make, to make ice for certain events or a hierarchy you try to climb up as well or. Well, the Olympics is obviously the pinnacle, just like players Olympics is the, the main thing that everybody shoots for. Um, that would be my goal. I would love to do an Olympics one day. Hopefully that happens. But um, in Canada, it's a, I think it's a little bit different. You may or may not get an email sometime in the summer asking you to take part in an event. But you have to know the right people. You have to make good on some opportunities that you're given. You have to dedicate a lot of time volunteering. Um, I've done countless events volunteering, whether it's been slams or different national championships. And unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, I got the opportunity to do one event uh, with Curling Canada, but uh, none after that. So my focus has been on WCF for a while now. And they, they have their stable of ice technicians that they trust, which is great that I'm on that list. But at the same time, they're still looking for younger people to get involved as you know ice making is not necessarily the uh the most youthful stable of guys and girls that are doing it uh which was really cool in europeans this year we had the youngest crew ever uh we had john heron who's uh in scotland he's 34 myself uh, i'm 31 asmus and uh from uh denmark and ingvild from Norway. So we had the four of us and we we're all, you know, very, very young. Um, I won't say there's a pyramid, but there's definitely people that they trust and those people that they trust are going to get more opportunities. And they're starting to try and introduce more and more uh, younger people to try and get involved in it because it's a great experience, a great opportunity, but uh, it's definitely not for everyone either. All right. What's the one thing as an ice maker that you wish the average club curler knew about ice making that they don't know? I think just simply how much time it takes. Like even install. If we do an install for a curling club, we're usually taking two weeks to do it. Roughly. If you're at a curling club that has to paint, um, you have to clean the floor beforehand, then you're putting down different layers of water. When you're painting, the painting day is usually a full 16-hour day, at least. 
you're painting white, you're sealing it in, and you're scribing circles, um, painting the circles, sealing that in, lines, logos, like everything that's in the ice is placed by us or painted by us. Um, and I would encourage anyone at their club to uh, go talk to their ice maker. And, you know, sometimes it's good to volunteer for that process is just see what all goes on. Because for a lot of people, they just don't uh, don't realize that they just show up and, oh, yeah, there's curling ice, you know, it's here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we've been here for a while. We've been putting it in for a while. But uh, events, uh, same sort of thing. We usually get four or five days to put it in. And the expectation is to have extremely good ice in a very short period of time so you know it it's time consuming even your day-to-day tasks and all the dirt and all that that you got to clean up and you know people always notice those little little specks of dirt and all that and usually after the ice is done there's no specks of dirt on there it's not until the curlers come on that uh, some of that ice comes on or some of that dirt comes on so um i it's a lot of work and uh a lot of people do appreciate what their ice techs do go through, but uh, I don't think a lot of realize how much time and effort is put into it. So, all right. So one thing, when you were making the ice at the dub, at the ECA event uh, up in Dumfries, I mean, I always try to pick something up all the time from whatever. And so I just got it stuck in my head is uh, when we got down to like the finals and the playoffs, we were down to like two sheets and you still made all six sheets. Like you scraped it yep. right down, put the base back in, pebbled it up. And the other four sheets weren't in use at all. And I never asked you, why are you making all those sheets? Why not just make ours? And you said, well, it's, that's to stop the frost from creeping in. So do you just mind explaining the theory behind that? And, and Yeah, uh, so it's something that is actually in uh, WCF policy now. Um, something that I really learned from Mark Callen um, when we were doing the Youth Olympics that first time around. When you have a building that is high humidity or more likely to get a frost um, you want to scrape all the sheets so that frost has a longer time to creep over those extra sheets will actually act as dehumidifiers for the game sheets so they'll start pulling some of that frost away so when ecas where we had a nice not so little storm roll through and we had done a pretty good job keeping the frost at bay for the most part already we really wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to creep all the way over into the game sheets. So uh, we scrape all that frost off and then pebble them up, including your game sheets. And that way the frost has a longer time to creep over, as well as uh, some of the humidity in the air will be drawn to those sheets that are just sitting there. What about the other thing you did a lot of there was texturing the rocks. So the rocks definitely swung a lot more than normal, which is <laughs> nice to play on. So I wonder if you'd take a little bit of time to explain how texturing the rocks works and why Aztec, why Aztecs do it? So one of the main, I think, uh, misconceptions is curl comes from the stones. The If curl comes from the ice, that means you are dished or shaped or not level. One of the main things we want to be is level so that you have consistency across all the sheets. Um, it's extremely difficult to make curl come from the ice and it's not a true curl it's more gravity taking effect on the stones Um, and stones don't curl up hills so if you're shaping the ice to get curl you're getting curl one way but you're negatively affecting that curl the other way this is why we texture stones so texturing stones essentially gives uh, traction to the running surface on the stone for it to bite and grab the curl and allow it to curl more aggressively, but also allow us to control the curl as well. Um, and we can control the curl by clipping different amounts or nipping different amounts, as well as running different ice temperatures and air temperatures in order to get the optimal curl that we want. We texture stones because then we know, we take one factor out of it. We know we get curl. Um, so for 99% of the events that I'll do, I'll want to do the stones at the beginning of the event so I know that I don't have to worry about curl. I know I have curl, now I can focus on air, humidity, all those sorts of temperatures, as well as speed of the ice. I'm taking one factor out, um, because if you're fighting to get curl for an event, it's not fun. Um, The curlers don't like to play on it. I can't stand seeing it, so uh, 
I'll do my best to do the stones whenever possible to ensure that I have that and then take some of the guesswork out of it. It does affect the rock though. So how, how often is a safe amount to texture rocks and how many textures do you think a, a rock has in its lifetime as a championship level rock? A lot. Um, I think that's a misconception that uh, stones will be overly worn out uh, by doing it. You will increase the running band width. Um, however, there are um, experienced ice techs that know how to shrink the running bands. So that is something that can be done through an experienced ice tech at a, at a curling club. Like They don't necessarily have to be shipped off in order to shrink up those running bands. What happens when running bands get too wide is they get really fast. Or the stones will get really fast, but they'll lose some of their bite for their edge. As far as at a club level, um, I think you can do them at the beginning of the season, around Christmas time is good. And if you have a bigger an event at some point in the season, you may want to consider doing them before that event as well. I think that's a pretty standardized um, schedule for a club. That being said, it also depends on your usage. The last club I was doing, we had six sheets, but our sheet six was only used twice a week. So those stones had to be uh, actually moved to a different sheet the next season or to make sure that they got the same wear and tear. Um, but when I was texturing them, I also had to be careful they didn't overdo those ones because then it would play completely different than the other ones as well. Um, it also depends on how much dirt that you're getting on your surface. Like that will clog up some of those little scratches that you're putting in the running surface. So you might have to either clean them or do them more regularly if you get a lot of dirt and that sort of stuff on your ice as well. What's the big difference between making ice in, say, an arena for a championship event and in a curling club? And is it possible to maintain championship level ice at the club level? It's pretty difficult. Um, the main reason is time. Uh, you look at, at a championship, uh, we have, have to have good ice for usually, say, 10 days. Uh, longer events, maybe two weeks, but that those are only really, really long events. And during that time, we're usually doing 12 to 20-hour days, depending on some of the conditions that we're being given. There's usually two of us doing it, as well as we'll have a full crew to pick up snow and help do all the uh, little tasks that club ice makers find uh, may find a little bit on the annoying side. Um, most clubs, you'll have one guy, maybe two guys doing it. And, and that's it. That's all the help that they get. Is it possible? Sure. Uh, but the, the amount of man effort and, and work that would go into it would be really difficult. Um, we're very fortunate at events that we usually have good volunteers and good teams that we're able to do that, I won't say easily, but quite efficiently. Um, at a club level, I know that I can get conditions really, really good for a period of time but there's always going to be that drop off um again dirt comes into play the lack of time in between draws like at an event you're scraping every draw at a club level you might get one scrape in the morning maybe one scrape in the afternoon and that's it some clubs only scrape a couple times a week so it it's mainly a time thing um and the resources that you're given What's the, I mean, you've made ice all around the world, right? So what are some of the more challenging conditions for making ice that you encountered? I got uh, a really cool job offer in uh, China last June. And China in June, who for those who haven't been there, it's uh, it was 40 degrees with about humidity of, I don't know, it had to be 100. Like it was just you could barely walk outside like the air felt thick and it was just it was gross inside the arena i had four smallish dehumidifiers and this was a 8000 seat arena like it was absolutely massive it was also 20 degrees uh in the arena and it was a mixed doubles tournament so you don't have as much sweeping um we reduced the pregame practice because the teams basically had about uh, three good ends worth of, worth of really good ice. And after that, the frost would start creeping in. 
and he had to stick to one side of the sheet. Teams weren't actually using the power play because there was just so much frost buildup, but there was literally nothing that could be done. Um, I would go out right after their game, um, mixed doubles game, say they're an hour and a half. We were doing two and a half to three hours of ice prep for an hour and a half game. So wow. we'd go out, we'd scrape it. Um, I would take a full pebble can full of water, much like I did in Dumfries, put a ton of pebble down to basically create a brand new surface for the players to play on that was frost free scrape it a little bit again to give a little bit extra depth in the ice um so it wasn't like really really flat because then the frost would creep right over there was um little gaps in kind of the pebble so that the frost would creep down lower and have more height for it to build up and then it would triple pebble clip it and then just hope and pray. Um, but you could actually see as soon as the players got out there, um, when players are going up and down the sheets, they're moving air. And when that warm air goes across a cold surface, that's when you're getting a lot of that frost. So if it just sat there, it would have been okay. But as soon as you get air movement, you're getting more and more frost. And um, I was exhausted. Uh, I was the only one who could pebble at this event because <laughs> I didn't have a deputy. So... I spent, uh, I don't know, hours a day scooting backwards pebbling and uh, was just wiped by the end of it. So definitely a challenge. Um, but I've also been to Finland in uh, Lohia and we, uh, the ice maker boxes that we got, um, they, they were on like their third event in a row or something like that. And somehow some of the painting equipment didn't show up. So we were supposed to paint all the white, but we had nothing to paint with other than the big spray boom. So normally you need a barrel, a pump, your hose, um, and all your, your paint and all that. All we had was the boom, which is a big 14-foot uh, basically sprayer, and the paint. That was it. So I had to go out. I found a like a big plastic tub that the hockey players used to use to bathe in, like have hot tub or a bath in after games. Plugged the hole in that, so we use that to mix all of our paint. And for those who don't know about the paint, they come in these boxes and it's like powdered milk. Mm-hmm. So you dump it in, you mix it around, and it gets everywhere. And it, yeah, it's it's a good old mess. Um, and to paint an arena, we'll use, say, 400 gallons of white paint. So it's not like it's a little amount of white paint. So mix up all this. Then I found a sub pump somewhere in the, the storage room there. Stuck that in, tied it to a rope with a hockey stick over top of the tub so that it was dipped into the, the bath and we could actually get enough pressure to spray paint it all white. Um, so that took... I know probably a day just to even get that all jigged up. And when you already have a limited time schedule, um, we were pretty much up against the clock and we did, I think we did four straight 20 hour days in a row. And then the junior bees are already the busiest vent on schedule. They have four draw days. And yeah, by the time that one was done, I was ready to sleep for a few days straight. Where in, where in China was, was that event? Zhengding. It was about two, 250 kilometers south of Beijing. Okay. So still, still the northern part of the country. So still the fact that it was that hot. And for those of us in the U.S., 40 degrees outdoor temperature Celsius is about 100 Fahrenheit. And then you're talking inside the arena at 20. That's about 70 Fahrenheit. So that's pretty warm. And that's still a northern part of the country. You get down into shanghai or hong kong and it's it's even warmer so along those lines i do want to kind of get sciency on you because i know that there is there's a lot there's a lot of chemistry that that goes into ice making well first of all were you were you prepared for how much chemistry is necessarily involved in ice making you know the the more i got into it the more i learned and the i was lucky enough to kind of get thrown into a lot of this pretty gradually so it wasn't just all hit me at once Every event that I go to, any every different ice maker that I work with, I pick something up. Just like I hope that anyone that I work with picks something up from me. So 
Was I completely prepared? Probably not. Uh, along the way, you know, I've picked up a lot and I'm very comfortable with, with what I'm doing now. Yeah. How good were you in school at, at, at all of that? Oh, not. <laughs> yeah. Not. Yeah. Talking about water, is there a best type of water for curling ice? Because one of the things I've heard here, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and we have a bunch of breweries. We have like 30 breweries in a city that is not that large. And one of the reasons for that is apparently the water here is perfect for brewing beer. And I've heard that water that's perfect for brewing beer is also the best for curling ice. Is there a, is there a type of water that you prefer when you're when you're getting ready to make ice in an arena or at a curling club? Yeah, so we use typically two different types of water. So we'll either use deionized water. So Jet Ice makes uh, a few filtration systems and uh, as well as there's a few other companies that do. But uh, the water basically goes through a chemical filtration process to take out any minerals or organics and all that good stuff out of the water. A lot of the stuff that kind of like a city or something will put in in order to make it clean we want it to be as pure as possible. So uh, the other option is uh, RO, uh, reverse osmosis. So everyone is probably pretty uh, knowing of that type of system. But the cleaner you can get your water, or we use a TDS, total dissolved solids. So that'll count how many minerals and organics are in the water in parts per million. We're usually looking for a number that's zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dumfries, I'm pretty sure we had three or four parts per million, which is fine, well enough. Uh, obviously, you'd love it at zero. And then we look for a neutral pH. So if water is too acidic or too basic, um, it's not going to stand up, and that pebble is not going to be as solid or strong. And the more minerals and organics that are in the water, they're going to soften it up. So your pebble is going to actually break down a lot easier and a lot quicker. Um, so the more pure the water, the better off we are. And then if, if you could pick, if you could set the outside temperature and humidity, what would you set it at? I, I like something that's pretty dry. Um, you know, something we, we look at dew point. Mm-hmm. So if dew point's really, really low, um, say you're at like minus eight, minus nine for a dew point, then if your dehumidification systems are still running, you're actually going to lose ice. So the, the dehumidifiers need to get that humidity from somewhere. So too low of a dew point, it'll actually start basically decaying your ice away or ripping it away. Mm. Um, whereas too high, you're start, going to start to get frost. So something in that like minus three to four to five, you know, that, that's a great range. Anything under zero, my dew point in China was like 17 Oh, wow. Plus, so it's just like it, it was unbearable. Um, as far as temperature, like 10 degrees, 8, 9, 10 at head height is good uh, for playing. But uh, yeah, something that's just not too damp and not, not too warm. Usually you can deal with too cold. Uh, you can warm up ice temperatures. You can change uh, your temperatures of your water and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, Green Acres was a good example of that for the mm. World Mixed Doubles qualifying event. Uh, I think it was two degrees in the ice shed. I think that was the warmest we saw it. Um, is is that the still... ice shed in the back, or? Oh no, that was the whole building. Like it oh, was, wow. like it was cold, and that was in December. Um, yeah. But uh, we still had, you know, five plus feet of swing and uh, fourteen and a half seconds hog to hog. So. Good conditions overall, especially for mixed doubles. And uh, yeah, so there's different things that you can do to try and combat your conditions, um, but you have to pay attention to what's actually going on outside as well. So what's the fast, here's like a question, like what's the absolute fastest it would be like theoretically possible to make curling ice? Well, how long do you want it to last? (laughs) (laughs) I guess for eight ends or whatever, for a standard game. I think you're looking at probably... 16 maybe 16 and a half is pushing it typically like for for club curlers if you notice that your ice is really really fast right off the hop you know that it's going to come crashing down at some point as an ice maker and and as a player i never minded seeing the ice being a little bit slower to start because that means at the end of your game your ice is going to be should still be good and quick 
if it's really, really fast, it's usually going to fall off a cliff at some point. So you can make ice super, super fast, but it's probably going to start to tail off and get slower as the game goes on. Hmm. So is there is there like an ideal hog-to-hog time you're aiming for as an ice maker? I love to see right around 15, that, like mm-hmm. that 14... Even 14.6, you know, that that's a good number, too. Um, that's kind of what we shoot for. Um, I, I don't even remember what it was at in Dumfries. I think it was 14.3, something like that. But, you know, it was pretty consistent the whole time, which is the main thing that you're aiming for. Whether it's club play or an event play, you really would like it to be consistent for your members or for the athletes that are playing on it. And whether that be from draw to draw or day-to-day or throughout the entire event, whatever they're starting to play with, that's kind of what you want it to keep it for. You don't want to have too many swings in the ice. Players are usually pretty adaptable. So if you have ice that's, say it's 13.8, so a little bit under 14, but still curling four feet, players will adapt to that and they'll still be able to make shots. Whereas if you give them 14-second ice and then 16-second ice and then 15-second ice, they're going to be all over the map and cursing and swearing left, right, and center. If yeah. you're if you're new to the sport, what we're talking about there is timing the rock, how many seconds between the hog lines. So 15 second, a 15 second timed rock from hog line to hog line is what we're looking for. Yeah, that'd be pretty fast. I think it was about 14 and a half all week. It was very consistent. Like the splits were. I was, I was basically looking for a three eight five split all the time, and that was it, it. Rarely varied from that, I'd say. Like it was pretty much within three feet the whole whole week. So. And you played both events too. I played both events. I mean, there's yeah. more uh, there's more variation in releases and uh, people's throwing <laughs> styles than there was in terms of the split time. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it was it was really good ice to play on. Um, what about the swing? So. Are there limits to how much you can make it curl? Like, could you, in theory, make it curl 10 feet if you wanted to? Well, here, here's a question for you guys, I think. Have you guys ever played on ice that has not been pebbled at all? Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> how much? So, we, you, so we, played, we played probably on the worst ice on the planet in Oklahoma City. We played on arena ice. There was a sheet D that had uh, 10 feet of curl on it. <laughs> 10 feet of fall. Yeah. <laughs> So in theory, like if you don't pebble a sheet and you've just done stones, you're, you're not going to be able to keep them on the sheet. You're also not going to be able to get them to the hog line. So th- there's a tolerance, I think, that's that we try and keep within. Um, I love seeing the broom in the 12 foot. So when players are trying to put do a draw the button, if they're kind of right about middle 12, that that's what I like to see. That being said, you know, you looked at the senior men's for the ECAs. I think they were taking 12 feet worth of ice. Um, it, a lot of it's dependent on the curler as well. So if someone, it, we often hear the slam release. So that nice poppy in-out release, that's going to get a lot less curl than, say, a soft club release. So you do have to know your audience and know who you're making ice for and try and find that balance between it. But because you can, especially for club play, if you give five feet of ice for a someone like the Jacobs team and you put your club curlers on that, they're going to get 10 feet of curl. So um, as far as a limit, yeah, you can make it curl a lot, but it's just not going to be very playable. Um, that kind of that four to five foot range is a good playable surface for, for most everybody. So on TV, like especially TSN, I know Russ Howard's always on this, or uh, is uh, different ice makers have different styles of playing surface. So is that true, first of all? And then how do you think the different ice techs differ in terms of uh, the ice surface style? Yes, it's 100% true. Uh, there's a lot of different ice makers that have a different way of going about things. In the end, they're all searching for the same thing. They're all searching for that quick curly ice that's going to be consistent and uh, hold up for the entire game. So that that's the end result. How guys get there is very different. Um, 
you have some ice makers that like to scrape the ice really, really aggressively. So when they're taking all off all that game pebble, they will scrape right down to the hardwood. So it's smooth. It, there's no pebble left over at all. They'll repebble it and then clip it. Um, th- there's other guys who like to leave a little bit there. Um, some of it might depend on conditions, but they don't like to scrape as aggressively. There's some guys that really like doing the stones really, really aggressive and then clipping very, very little amounts. Or other guys who would rather try and not build a lot of shape into the sheets, but just build that little bit. Um, and also some guys that like to get shape in their sheets by scraping and the different patterns that they run. Or some guys that do it from pebbling. One thing that a lot of, uh, I will say a lot of ice makers don't do, but for a club ice maker, something that they should look at is how they pebble. So if you pebble and you throw a lot of water when you're pebbling over into the middle, you need to start scraping the middles a little bit more aggressively. For me, when I'm pebbling, I know that my high spots usually go out to kind of that edge 8 foot, middle 12 foot. Those areas, just the way I pebble, seem to get a little bit higher. So I have to focus on that area a little bit more and making sure that they don't get too high. So whether it's recording um, themselves when they're pebbling or having someone watch, uh, it's a really good thing to do. But uh, there's lots of different styles. And what I do, because I get a, the chance to work with a lot of different people, is try and pick little things out that work for me and make my own style and see what works for myself. Um, but uh, yeah, it, there's lots of different styles, and uh, but in the end, they all try and get the same result. Yeah. So, what's your style? How would you describe the style of ice you like to produce? The main thing I want is consistency. So, from a player's standpoint, I want them to know that when they step on the ice, that they're going to get, you know, consistent speed throughout the whole game and consistent curl. Um, sometimes those numbers that we were talking about earlier are dependent on what we have available to us or what the building allows us to do. So we work as hard as possible to, or I work as hard as possible to make sure that I'm consistent with what I'm producing and go from there. Um, there are events that if they're really dry, I like to scrape a little bit more aggressively, get a lot, a lot more off. Um, whereas events like dump freeze and those events where you have higher humidity, I'm not going to scrape as aggressively just to try and get some depth to the ice so that the frost doesn't overcome the, the game pebble. If someone's looking to get into ice making, what should they do is, and I know it differs from country to country, but I mean, is the first thing just go to your local club and volunteer with your ice maker? Yeah, exactly. There's also, if you're, I'd say that's the first step to do. Um, go talk to your local ice tech and, and see what they think. And um, if you volunteer a little bit and get into it, maybe see it's something that you like. If it is, because it's definitely not something that's for everyone, volunteer at an event, same sort of thing. Kind of get a, a feel for if it's something that you may like doing. And if it's something you really want to pursue, I know there's the levels, there are uh, different, different courses that you can take. Uh, in order to help improve your skill set and knowledge base. And if you get a chance to talk to your association, see if you can get involved in some of the higher-up stuff, and eventually, hopefully, that leads into some events, uh, like with Curling Canada or, or curling the USA Curling Association and WCF. So I think that that's a good starting point, uh, but it's... As I said, it's not something that's for everyone. It's a lot of hours. It's a lot of work. Um, and it's not a warm job most of the time. So it's similar to like we were talking about earlier with leads. Like, is there a certain personality trait that, that ice techs need to have? Or is it just having a thick skin when it comes to dealing with club curlers? <laughs> I think having a thick skin uh, is part of it, but an open mindset too. You know, um, a lot of curlers, they watch watch what's on TV and take everything that's being said um, by the people on TV truly to heart. Um, one of Russ's famous quotes is that there's no curl out east. Most mm-hmm. curling clubs out east don't have a lot of curl. Well, 
you know, we have some fantastic ice techs here in Halifax and a lot of clubs that have a lot of curl. Um, so again, that's here in Nova Scotia. I can't really talk to too much about New Brunswick where he's from, but, um, I know that their opinions mean a lot to a lot of the viewership. So thick skin is part of it. Um, you have to be able to work weird hours. Like the amount of all nighters that I've pulled over the years are countless. Um, whether it to be to fix a sheet or reflood the ice middle of the season or uh, get it ready for a tournament. Um, you have to be ready and willing to work weird and long hours and function on a lot of coffee. Because <laughs> um, sometimes that's all you really have to go off of and, and be adaptable. I think that's the biggest thing. There's never a day or an install that's usually the same. Um, I trying to think of one install that's gone perfect start to finish and I can't think of one. So being adaptable and being able to adjust on the fly and make things work and not get, get you too bogged down is really, really important as well. Do you have any other stories you want to tell? Any good anecdotes? A few years ago, uh, it was more than a few years ago now. It's kind of interesting. We, we had a big, big snowstorm here in Halifax. Um, and we got like something like 70, 70 centimeters of snow and then we had a day break and got like another 40 plus centimeters of snow and it just piles and piles of it and kind of subsided for a few days we got another big storm but it was warmer and it was all rain so i got a call from the the president at the curling club and he said hey you know it's just too gross out don't bother coming in today we're going to cancel everything perfect you can sleep in you know shovel the shovel and do what i need to not like eight minutes later get another call jamie come down to the club what do you mean the curling clubs collapsed oh, so God. the oh, roof no. there was so much snow and all that rain it just put all this weight down and the entire ice uh shed from the middle there was all these big massive wooden beams of the four sheet club and all this weight came and it just collapsed in so the walls were still up but the whole middle it just completely collapsed in so I show up and it's just, the, the clubhouse is still fine. There was one window that was broken, but the entire ice shed was just gone. So with that, obviously, season's canceled. Um, it's like, why did, they, why did they get you out of bed? What could you have possibly done in that well, situation? <laughs> the, the firefighters actually wanted to know if there was any of the refrigeration equipment that was going to be damaged or anything like that. Because it's an ammonia-based plant, mm. so they had to make sure that it was all shut down and all that. So we put the mask on and went down and made sure that that was all um, not up and running anymore. And not much more that I could do. Like the stones were obviously done, but um, so through the next little while, worked with them and they got the ice shed rebuilt. So had this all this new equipment and now. It's where the Stu Cells is hosted in uh, Halifax. So great, great facility. But we didn't upgrade the uh, dehumidifier. So we had it was a great, really well insulated building, and for whatever reason, the HVAC system that was in there was drawing a bunch of air in. So we we're basically having to determine whether we wanted it to be raining inside because there's so much humidity. Or frost so bad that we couldn't actually see the rings when we get in in the morning. So it was great facility, but really wasn't quite set up how we had hoped it to, to be. And since then, they've got a new DH, and that's all worked out. But I couldn't believe it. Like, phone call, yeah, the curling club's collapsed in. <laughs> the one other part to the story is the day it happened was a week to the day right after the tankard final was hosted at that venue. Mm. So yeah, one week they're hosting tankard and next week it's uh, gone, done. Well, we, uh, we, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything that you want to leave us with that we maybe haven't touched on yet? No, I think, uh, I think anytime you can go out and uh, talk to your ice tech or local tech and, get to learn a little bit more and uh, 
you know, when the ice is good, don't be afraid to go tell them uh, how much you enjoy it and, uh, and appreciate the work that they're doing. You know, a lot of us hear a lot of the bad comments um, and we always appreciate when we hear a few of the good ones. Um, and uh, hopefully we're back to curling sooner rather than later with all this. And uh, always make sure that your ice techs are not buying their own beer, right? Yeah, beer, coffee, you know, that, <laughs> coffee. that's actually a really good thing. Find out how your ice maker likes their coffee. Mine's black, by the way, for anyone. <laughs> All right, well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on, guys. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.